open up your Bibles with me. If you have one of these from the pew in front of you, you're on page 815 today. If you brought your own Bible, and I do hope you did. If you belong here, you are God's people who long to hear His Word. Oh, how I hope you bring your Bible to church. Uh, we're page 815 in the pew Bible, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. In your Bible, and you can also follow along with the screen. This is the Word of God speaking to us. Our Lord and Savior says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. And if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So, Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who's in heaven. This is the word of God. You may be seated. pray. Father in heaven, what a rich feast you've put before us this morning. You have have called us into your presence to sing to you, and oh, how you have given us voices to sing this morning. You have given us your word to hear from you, and Lord, already we have heard from you this morning. And we thank you. We thank you. God, this is a gift. To gather together as your people to hear you speak is a massive, massive gift. Lord, I I pray this morning that as we listen to you speak from your word, that you give us understanding, that you would give us gratefulness, that you would would give us a sense of, of gravity. Just to wait, Lord, knowing what it means to be in Christ, what it, what it means to follow Christ, to pro- proclaim Christ. God, let us not take this lightly, this faith that you've given us. My sister, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we were in Matthew chapter 10. We looked at verses 5 through 15, and we saw there in, in those verses If you were with us, you remember this. If you weren't, you can go back and listen to it, or I'll summarize it for you. There, Jesus had begun to talk to his disciples about their first mission into the Jewish world around them, their inaugural mission trip. He told them what to wear. He told them what to say. He told them where to go and where to stay. And he told them what it would be like for the towns that that turned them away. You remember that? 
for the, for the towns that wouldn't receive their message. And, and all throughout that passage last week, there was very much this, this immediate sense to those verses. There was a sense of the urgent, of the immediate. Their mission was local. The harvest was plentiful. The need was critical. Well, in this week's passage, Jesus continues on, on where he started. But, but he, get, he begins here to, to kind of give us a bigger picture of what it's going to be like for the apostles as they're, as they're sent out. Because all the things he tells them here, they, not, they don't see in that first trip. We see these things fulfilled later. What he's doing here is he's beginning to prepare them for the mission that will continue all the way to their death after Christ is gone. And, and with that continued mission is going to come one constant opposition. The main point of our text this morning is that for those who are sent by Christ, persecution will come. It will. There will be opposition. And here's how Jesus teaches this to us. It comes in three parts. And each one of these parts could easily be a sermon. Or five. Okay? So we're going to blaze through these massive, massive Theological truths this morning, so I want you to, to just be patient and think, well, he could have said this, you could have, we're just going. All right, so we're moving through the text. Here are these three parts, these three massive truths that Jesus gives us. One, persecution will come. Two, perseverance is required. And three, the Father protects. All right, so if you're taking notes, You can divide your note area into those three truths and give a lot of space to persecution will come. All right? Because you're going to bleed over into the next ones if you try to divide it by thirds. A lot of time is going to be devoted here to this idea because a lot of time is what Jesus gives this idea. This all starts with Jesus' warning at the very beginning in verse 16. Look at verse 16 with me. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And remember when he says, behold, remember what that means? It means, look out. This is really important. So here it is. Here's that word. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now what's interesting for us as we read this is we're, we're, we're now seeing this in the context of the last couple weeks of Matthew chapters 9 and 10. And so we know that the context of this is that just last week, Jesus looked out over the crowds and saw sheep without a shepherd. Do you remember that? He sees these sheep without a shepherd in that they they were harassed, they were helpless. And then he looks at his disciples, he knows he has to send them out into the world to gather in that harvest, and look what he calls them. Sheep. They're sheep. And they're being sent not just into an area where there's a threat of wolves, not just like there might be wolves there. They're sent into the wolf pack. That's Martin Luther, the old reformer, he looks at this verse and he asks this question, and I think he's right to ask this question. He says, Why is he sending them as sheep? Why not lions? Right? Think about it. Jesus has empowered these disciples with the ability by the Spirit to raise the dead and cast out demons and heal the sick. Why can't he just give them sway over wolves too? Like just one more little thing. Right? But, but within Luther, he answers his own question, and I think wisely and biblically, he says, our faith doesn't stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. In other words, we may be sheep, and that's all we may ever be, but we're God's sheep with God's message. The message, the gospel message, that's where our power is. Our power is not, it's not like the world's power. Our power is not to be found in the way the world does things. In the world, how do you meet strength? 
with strength. In the world, you, you don't bring a, a knife to a gunfight, right? In the, in the world, you meet fierceness with fierceness. If you want to get ahead, what do you need in the world? You need financial power. You need political power. You need to expand your platform. You need to gain influence. If you're up against wolves, you need to be wolf-like in the world. Talking to a dear friend of mine this week, who's also a pastor, and, and, and I think sinfully, we were both bemoaning that smaller churches don't have as much influence on the city as we'd like. But as I was studying this passage this week, the, 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 the day I got off the phone with him, the Lord corrected me. Our, our, our power and our strength are not in the size of our church. They're not in the platform that we have. Our power, or rather, God's power through us is in his message alone. Christian, we need to understand something. We're not wolves. We shouldn't act like wolves. We shouldn't lust after the power of wolves. We have mistakenly believed that if we want to convert people to Christianity, if we want to convert people to what we believe, if we want to find ourselves on the winning team, that all we need is a president or a congressman that calls themselves a Christian. And think, think about the things that we get really excited about. We get really excited when a celebrity or an athlete says they're a Christian. Why? Because then we think, well, now we have somebody that can compete with the wolves. We have someone who has the strength of the world on our side. But here's the thing. If that person we're praising, whoever it is, if they're actually a Christian, what are they? They're just sheep. They're going to be devoured, no matter who they are, no matter what platform they have. Or, or, or how about this? We believe that, that we can use the world's methods of persuasion. It's another wolf-like thing that we tend to do. Movies, entertainment, if we can write music that sounds like the world's music, if we can play, make plays and movies that look like the world's movies, then we can convince the world that we're as legitimate as they are. We mistakenly believe that, that somehow the gospel is just another idea of the world. And all we have to use is the world's methods to promote another worldly message. That's false, isn't it? Our message isn't of the world. It's not of the world. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? He says that what we've been entrusted with is the wisdom and power of God. The message we have is foolishness to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. That means the secular and the pagan world isn't going to be persuaded by what we have no matter how we package it. We have to just understand that truth about what we've been given. Neither is the religious world going to be persuaded by what we have. All we are and all will ever be until King Jesus returns is sheep among wolves. We're buying and we're bleeding what sounds like nonsense to the wolves. And all they do is bare their teeth and growl and bark and howl to the other wolves that they have found easy prey in us. That's the reality Jesus has given us in verse 16. That's it. We cannot and we should not go among wolves and try to be like wolves. We are what we are, and that's all we'll ever be. We're God's little found sheep, calling God's helpless lost sheep from among the wolves to the good shepherd. Come and follow the shepherd with us. That's our message. That's who we are, and we could end there. Because we're just little sheep, 
we're without any natural defenses. We can't fight back with the weapons of the enemy. So Jesus says we must be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That, that reference to wise as serpents. When was the last time you heard of a wise serpent? Genesis 2, right? Genesis 2, 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now the serpent, on the other hand, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So think about that contrast. The man and his wife are naked. They're unguarded. They're unprotected. And then immediately following that statement, Moses tells us in the same breath, now the serpent was crafty. And that word crafty there, that doesn't mean maliciously tricky, though Satan is maliciously tricky. That word crafty right there, more crafty than any other beast of the field, all that means is he's, he's got street smarts. He's, he's savvy. He's experienced. So there's a contrast you're supposed to see there. This a naivety and street smarts. What Jesus is telling us here, when he says be wise as serpents, he's not saying, friends, please don't hear this this way. He's not saying be like Satan, okay? Please don't hear it that way. He is saying, don't be naive. Know your opposition. Know what you're up against. Preempt the moves of the enemy. Don't be naive, but do be what? Be innocent. Innocent as doves means there, there's no mixture of evil in your motives. We, we are to maintain a purity through and through all the way in what we do. Our motives are pure. Our actions are pure. And here's the thing. The enemy is going to accuse Christians of all sorts of things. All sorts of things. Every day we see this. But Christians are never to be found guilty of doing something illegal or immoral or unethical. That's the innocence as doves. Innocent as doves. So we're being sent as sheep among wolves. Okay, so that's the reality that Jesus starts us with. I was very, very tempted to just preach on that verse today. But we're working our way through Matthew. We're going to get through Matthew. And I want you to hear more of what Jesus says than what I have to say. Okay? So, but that's the reality for us as Christians. And it will always be our reality. There's, there's no promise in the New Testament before Jesus comes back that that reality changes. That's who we are. And with that Christian reality, what should we expect? Well, in one word, persecution. We, we should expect suffering. We should expect attacks from the wolves. Because that's what wolves do. They prey on sheep. And in verses 17 through 24, this next chunk of this morning's text, we get this, this very, very detailed picture from Jesus about what that suffering, what that persecution exactly is going to look like. This is, this is just pure prophecy here. And all of it comes true. Everything that Jesus says is going to happen from verses 17 to 24, all of it happens in the book of Acts. I would encourage you uh, just in your, in your study time this week as you're looking to God's word, read the book of Acts. There's a few chapters in particular that we're going to look at that, or that you'll see referenced here, but just read all of it this week. And then read verses 17 through 24 and say, oh, Jesus knew what he was talking about. And it, it continues, these prophecies continue to be fulfilled. Just as an example, look at verse 17. Jesus says the apostles will be delivered over to courts and flogged in synagogues. Well, that happened to Peter, that happened to John, that happened to Stephen, that happened to Paul. Read Acts 4, 5, and 6. Read, read the, the second half of Acts as well. All of that happened in the synagogues, exactly as Jesus said. In verse 18, Jesus says, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. That happened to Paul too, didn't it? Read Acts chapter 23, and 24, and watch Paul go before Felix. And then in, in verses 19 and 20 of our text, Jesus says, when you're handed over, that the Holy Spirit will speak through you. Again, where do you think we're going to find that happening? Acts. 
When Peter and John are arrested in Acts chapter 4, they're brought before the religious council and questioned. And Luke tells us explicitly, the Holy Spirit speaks through Peter. He tells us exactly what happens. The effect of what happens there is that the people questioning Peter have only one conclusion. This one came from Jesus. This one has been with Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. When he speaks, he points people to Christ. He verifies that you're one of the Jesus followers. All that Jesus says will happen, happens in the book of Acts. Jesus has prepared his followers for what will be a lifetime of difficulty. And it won't just be them out there, those evil Pharisees. It's not just going to be the the outwardly visible opposition from the outside that Christians will have trouble with. It's not just those religious leaders. It's not just the governing bodies. Where else does Jesus say that opposition will come? He says it's coming in the home. Look at verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father's child, the children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. The point that he's driving at, we're going to talk more about this family division stuff next week. It's really, really heavy next week. But the point that he's driving at here as he introduces this idea, you'll be hated by all. That's what he says in verse 22. It's not just them out there. It's those in the home. It's everybody. Christians who are proclaiming or truly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ will be hated by all. There are not exceptions. It's not just the people you don't like that are going to hate you when you faithfully follow Jesus. Jesus is saying that the people you love, your family members, the people you love will turn against you because you publicly promote Christ. Your message is going to be a bother to them. A, A bother. Jesus is saying here that 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 persecution for those apostles will be unavoidable. It will be so inescapable. He says in verse 23 that when one town gets tired of you, go to the next and proclaim the gospel there. And when that town gets tired of you, go to the next and preach there. And just keep doing that for the rest of your life. That's what he's saying. That is the life of someone who proclaims Christ. That's what it's like to be sheep among wolves. That's what he's saying. And, and if, it's just as a parenthesis here, there's this curiosity at the end of verse 23. If, you're, if you are a, a Bible thinker and you're a studier, you look at verse 23 and you go, what in the world? He says, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I don't believe he's talking here about the second coming. All right? There are passages where it's clear that the second coming is what's being talked about. We see those. They're very clear. This isn't one of those. Remember, at this point in the disciples' lives, in, in, the, in the story of the Gospels, they don't even know that Jesus is leaving them, let alone coming again. From my own study, I believe that the coming of the Son of Man in this passage is a reference to the resurrection and the ascension. And if you want to talk more about that, let's get a cup of coffee together. We'll talk about it. It's, there's just there's a lot here, and it's not the main point of this verse. The main point is what? Persecution's coming. Persecution is coming, and the disciples aren't going to run out of towns to go to, to evangelize in. To proclaim the gospel in. Are you, are, you, are you starting to get the picture? Of what, of what Jesus is, is showing the disciples. If you're sitting here. You're like me. And you're reading this text. And you're sitting here. And you're like. That's not what my life is like. Let's just consider this question for a moment. Not. Let's not consider the thought that. That 
Jesus is lying, because I don't think that could possibly be true. Let's consider that Jesus is telling the truth and ask the question of us, why are we not enduring the things that these apostles were said to have endured? Why haven't any of us that I know of been forced to leave hearth and home for the cause of Christ? Let me, let me read for you a quote from, from Don Carson. It's from his book on the, on the book of Matthew. It's called God With Us. Dr. Carson about this passage says this. He says, Where the church is persecuted virtually not at all, it will either be because it is so strong as to dominate the opposition or because it has become domesticated by the surrounding culture and therefore no longer presents a threat. Think about that for a minute. Either the church is a force to be reckoned with because they are dominant, they are the majority force in a culture, and so really what's the danger there? They're in danger of becoming like wolves. Or they have become domesticated by the surrounding culture. How does that happen? Well, the power and the offense of the cross is removed. Maybe in those cases, maybe the necessity of the cross has been diminished because the truth about our sinful nature has been just shoved under the rug. Let's not talk about that, right? And so rather than a message of repentance and forgiveness and eternity in joy with Christ... It's become more about this. Follow your dreams and be the best you. That's what Jesus has given you. Well, who doesn't want that? Right? That message is invented by the culture. It's invented by the world. Christians who are proclaiming that, are just, they've just co-opted the culture. Maybe, maybe it's this. Maybe the exclusivity of Christ has been removed. Which is to say, maybe... If we're not being persecuted, it's because we're not preaching loud enough that Jesus is the only way. And instead, we're, we're, we're teaching that there are many ways to God, and this is just our truth. In which case, what's true? Well, then Jesus died for no reason, if there are lots of ways. If you remove the offense of the cross, you remove the offense of the cross you can peddle Christianity and never, ever face persecution. I want you to consider that question at home today with your family or if you're in a home group, with your home group. Just, it's just write down this question. In America, particularly in San Diego, are we not being persecuted because there's just so many of us? Or have we become domesticated? Has our message become so watered down and, and blended with the, with the values of the culture so much that it's just not offensive anymore? Think about that. Talk about that together today. Maybe there's another reason, though. Maybe you can think of another reason why we're not facing the persecution that Jesus is promising his apostles. And I'm not, don't hear me as begging for persecution, Okay. I enjoy my home. I enjoy my family. But we should be asking. Maybe you'll come to the conclusion that we are being persecuted. And that certainly could be the case. After all, Jesus is teaching us here, it's inevitable, isn't he? It's inevitable. If you're following Jesus, look at verses 24 and 25. If you're following Jesus, you're going to be treated like Jesus. That's what he's saying here. It's enough for this disciple to be like Jesus. His teacher. Whatever happens to the teacher happens to the disciple. Whatever happens to the master happens to the servant. Two weeks ago, back in chapter 9, we saw the Pharisees. They were saying, when Jesus was casting out demons, they said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. And I told you we'd get to that later. Well, here it is. So now he's turning to his disciples and he's saying, Look, they say. That I am the prince of demons. What do you think 
they think about you. You fools who are following Beelzebub. Whatever happens to Jesus is going to happen to his disciples. It's so clear from this teaching. But that only is true. That's only true if they're really and truly following him. Look back at verse 22. We skipped it for a reason. Because it's our second point. You, you probably noticed we skipped over the, the, that, that shocking part of verse 22. The one who endures to the end will be saved. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. And you just have to go through it. There's an implication here that I don't want you to miss. It's, it's this. It's because of the difficulty of following Christ... Some will not endure to the end. That's what Jesus is getting at. Some will not. You don't say this if it's an automatic that all endure to the end. Some will not. Some will fold under pressure. When their dad says, you need to give up this Jesus is the Messiah nonsense or I'm disinheriting you. There will be some who do just that. They give up following Jesus for the sake of the family fortune. There are, there are Christians in Muslim countries that are faced with that exact dilemma daily. Jesus says they must endure to the end. When somebody's boss says, I don't care what you call yourself, Christian or not, you need to lie to this client or we're going to lose this client. And if that happens, you're fired. There will be some who will do that. They'll dishonor Jesus, their Savior, to keep their job. Today, when the culture says, we, as a culture, get to define marriage, or the individual, in their own liberty, gets to define their gender, there will be some who say, I want to be on team culture rather than team Jesus. For some reason, particularly in our nation, in the West especially, this has been the separating issue for the last 20 years. This is it. We have seen pastors and teachers and bloggers and musicians, some of your own kids, some of your siblings, many of my own friends, people we thought were professing Christians have abandoned historic Christian faith simply because of the Bible's clear teaching on marriage. It's, isn't it weird that that is the issue? Have you just thought about how strange it is that that is the issue that is leading people away from the faith at this point in history? Think about this. We believe in a God who became man by being born of a virgin who died on a cross, rose again, ascended into heaven. We believe in a Holy Spirit who we cannot see, but nonetheless inspired every word of the book in your hands. We believe that the Red Sea was opened up and God's people walked across the floor of that sea on dry land, totally dry, while the, while the waters are held up on either side of them. Pick any of those. Pick any of the other hundreds and hundreds of miracles that are really hard to believe in Scripture and say, I find that hard to believe and so that's why I'm not a Christian. And I'd be like, I get it. Right? But it's not the miraculous that turns the world away. Our world really doesn't take a whole lot of issue with miracles. They don't have beef with miracles. What does the world hate about Christians? Simply this, they hate it when Christians name sin. But here's the thing, sin is why Jesus died. The sin part of our message is the bad part that makes the good news good. It doesn't seem to matter though. The world hates our message and not wanting to be hated by the world has led many 
many, many professing Christians to abandon Christ to embrace the world. And Jesus says, but to be saved, to be saved, Christians must persevere in the faith all the way to their last breath. We must, as Christians, as those who are in Christ, as those who have been purchased, bought by Christ, as his people, we must continue to bear witness to who he is, why he came, and what he's accomplished, even when that message is detestable to the world. And there will always be some aspect of that message that is detestable to the world. Persecution is inevitable, but perseverance is required. It's required. The one who endures to the end will be saved. But the one who denies Jesus Christ before men, what does Jesus say in verse 33, the very end? Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who's in heaven. There's going to be, I, there is going to be a crisis point in your faith. There will be. If it hasn't happened already, there will come a crisis point in your faith when you are tempted to deny Christ before men. It could be the dumbest little issue. And you may not see it coming, but that moment is coming. And, and, and at that moment, your fear of man is going to be so great that your every instinct is going to be, I should abandon the faith and change what I believe so that I won't be an offense to this person. And if you do, Jesus says, he will deny you before the Father. And that is not hyperbole. Jesus is warning us of a very real possibility. Perseverance is absolutely necessary. It's required Keep living in obedience to Christ. Keep professing Christ as he has been revealed to us in Scripture. From the Old Testament all the way to Revelation. Over and over again throughout the Bible, this is what the Spirit teaches us. What Jesus is saying in these two verses in Matthew 10 is not new teaching. Solomon said it in Proverbs 23. He said, Let not your heart envy sinners, but do what? Continue. Continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. You see that pleading to continue? Perseverance, the call to perseverance. In Genesis, when Lot's wife turned back to her old life in Sodom, she's immediately judged. In Exodus, when Israel wanted to go back to their old life, the flesh pots in Egypt, many of them were judged. In the book of Acts, this is what the apostles are teaching when they preach to the Christians, when they were encouraging the Christians. Let me read you from Acts 14. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. Jesus said that would happen. They dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples, when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And look at this. Look at verse 22. What were they doing when they went back to those churches? They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Continue in the faith. You see it? Despite the trials that will come, we must continue in the faith. If you were with us when we studied Colossians, you saw this. Colossians 1.21 And you, Christian, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Persevere. 
Persevere. Don't give up. Don't quit. The author of Hebrews teaches this too. We could just go through the rest of the Bible. But Hebrews says this, Hebrews 3.14, For we've come to share in Christ if we indeed, if indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 10.35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The Christian message and our mission is not just to start following Christ. Our message and our mission is to finish. Follow Christ. Live in obedience to Christ. Grow in your understanding of Christ. Encourage others in Christ. Grow in Christ's likeness. Proclaim Christ boldly. All the way to the end. All the way to the end. There will be times when you don't think you can endure in the faith. When temptation seems too great. In despair, you want to give up. It just doesn't seem worth it anymore. There will be times when you feel embarrassed to believe the things that we believe as Christians. You will sometimes feel torn between the following that Christ has called you to and doing something that seems harmless, but you know dishonors God. You will feel the difficulty of persevering when you see someone you look up to and that you trust and they fall or they abandon the faith. When a Christian brother or sister hurts you or fails you, you're going to want to quit. If you're truly following Christ, there will be times when you just want to quit because you're just tired. <laughs> you're just tired. When, when none of this seems worth it anymore. Because your neighbor, you looked at your neighbor, and they're not a Christian, and they seem to be living a richer, happier, better life than you. And you just think, how can, how is that fair? Listen, when those are the thoughts that are racing through your mind, I want you to know something. And this, this is one of the grandest mysteries. One of the most wonderful and profound truths of the Christian faith. Do you know what it is? Even though you and I are commanded and exhorted to work and strive and persevere and endure in the faith all the way to our last breath, Listen, it's not us doing the enduring. It's the grace of God in you. It's the Father who protects you from falling away. If you've been truly born again into Christ, it is the Father who keeps you in Christ. That's what Jesus teaches us in this last section of this passage this morning. Kind of a roundabout way, so you're going to have to follow closely. All right. He starts with this command. Don't fear the world. Look at verse 26. So have no fear of them. He's talking about the wolves. Have no fear of them. He's going to tell us in a minute why not. But first, we need to see that the them is the world. It's the wolves. It's the non-Christian moms and dads and brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and bosses and co-workers and governors and rulers and judges and cops and neighbors. It's them. And Jesus says, do not fear them. Have no fear of them. Instead, do what? Well, take that message that you've been entrusted with and proclaim it to them. Boldly. Proclaim it to them from the rooftops with everybody watching. That's the point here. This is, you've received this in secret. Proclaim it in public. And he's saying you can do that even as a sheep in the midst of wolves. You can do that without any fear. How is that possible? Look what he says in verse 28. This is, this is where that 
tension comes. He's going to say it again. Do not fear them. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. That's them. That's the wolves. Do not fear them. Rather, what does he say? Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is the the two options, the two ways that Jesus is presenting before us. Your motivation in life is going to be one of two fears. Now, there are other things that motivate you. Don't don't mistake that. It's not all fear. But there are two primary motivators. Either the fear of the world or the fear of God. What does the fear of the world get you? More fear. Right? With the fear of the world, you can never fully please them. There's always something else the world requires. There's always something else you must give in order to be accepted by the world. Among the wolves, the rules are dog eat dog. Right? You, you can live in fear of the world and always and forever be constantly consumed by fear and anxiety. Or, option number two, you can fear God. You can have a right posture toward God. And here's what Jesus is getting at. While it's true that the world can do all sorts of evil to us. Look at the comparison. God's greater than the world. It makes more sense logically to fear God. Jesus is being very reasonable here. But here's the, while God may have the power and does have the power to condemn you to hell, the fear of God does not lead to more fear. The fear of God is just the beginning. Fear of God leads to comfort from God. As Proverbs 1 say, fear of God leads to wisdom. Look at what Jesus says. Look at verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. Look what he's gone from fear to fear not. Because you're a child of the father. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many, 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 many sparrows. Why shouldn't we fear? What's his Reasoning here, because the one who has sovereignty over you is holding your soul in his hands. If you're in Christ, he will never let you go. And though that seems terrifying, it isn't. This is good. The Father is good and loving and just and merciful. God takes care of worthless little sparrows. Not one of them falls to the ground outside of the good and righteous plan of God. You're of far more value than those sparrows. God knows you. He's called you. He's saved you. He knows everything about you because if you're in Christ, He's your Father. You've been adopted into His family. So though He has power and authority over you as the just and holy God of all creation... And that's true, and never forget that. He knows you as his child. Those are two truths you must hold together as Christians. Jesus is saying when you are going through a trial, and it's because you are a part of the family of God, and you're proclaiming Christ, and you're following Christ, right when you begin to feel tempted to walk away from it all, when the reason you want to give up is that you just don't think that it even matters to God anymore. How could it possibly if you're enduring this trial? When you think God cannot possibly care what's happening, Jesus is saying, it does matter. You do matter. Even sparrows matter to God. And you are of far more value than an entire flock of sparrows. You are the Father's child. And while it feels like he's abandoned you in this trial, this persecution, he has not abandoned you. He has given you the grace you need to endure. His spirit is in you, the same spirit who gives you boldness, 
And he protects you all the way to the end. The father protects the souls of his children. So listen, if you're in Christ, you are being sustained. You've been born again for the glory of God. You're being called to follow Christ and live for Christ and proclaim Christ for the glory of God. But no matter what circumstances come your way, I hope you see this. Please see this in this passage because this feels weighty, but this is such good news. You are being cared for by the Father. It is the grace of God in you that will cause you to persevere to the end. And if that's not enough, I want you to look at verse 32. If somehow it's hard to believe because of whatever you've been through in your life and it's just hard for you to believe that there is a father that is that good and caring look at verse 32 I want you to see this for the good news it is as you as a Christian who's been called to proclaim Christ as you advocate for Christ here on earth sustained by the grace of God you have an advocate in heaven Jesus Christ the righteous The world will oppose you. Not might. The world will oppose you if you're faithful to Christ. He will. And Jesus is teaching us we must persevere. But the Father protects you. And Jesus advocates for you. Amen? That is the good news we have in our hands this morning as Christians. Let's pray and praise God for this. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that though you have given us a difficult, difficult call and a difficult path to follow, it is your grace all the way through, all the way home. It's your grace that's called us It's your grace.